and thanks for listening to 90,000 Hours. I'm your host and producer, Robin Landy. Today's episode features Dr. Lillian Heron, a veterinarian living and working in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Thanks so much to Dr. Heron for taking the time to be on the show. Thanks as always to Eric Kuhn for the use of his music in this episode. You can follow along for updates on Instagram at 90,000HRSPod. Thanks so much for listening. I wanted to study wildlife. I was pursuing a wildlife um, ecology track in school and I was in grad school, but I got my first veterinary job as a technician right out of undergrad. And so I had been working most of those years as a veterinary technician while I was going to school piecemeal. So I knew that I needed some post-bac classes to get into grad school for wildlife. And so I did all that and I was taking one or two classes at a time most of the years in my 20s and early 30s, I was taking classes and working as a vet tech. So I had a lot of veterinary experience and I went from working in general practice to working for specialists such as like a veterinary neurologist, a veterinary surgeon. That was mostly to me my job. It wasn't going to be my career, but it was a way for me to work with animals while I was going through school to become a wildlife ecologist. And it just morphed over the years. I finally got into grad school and I was getting close to finishing grad school. And I started kind of having a paradigm shift because I was starting to realize that Um, the research that you have to be involved in. And that's what you're going to be doing long term. Usually when you're doing something like wildlife ecology was not for me. It didn't really jive with the way I thought. This one girl I knew kind of described it like there's two types of people that are kind of doing science type stuff. There's process people and there's results people. The results people like to see an end result of a problem. The process people are the ones that do really well with long-term research because every time you answer a question when you're doing research, there's 10 more questions that pop up. With something like a wildlife career, you're looking at going on to PhD and constantly you're just a process person. Whereas with veterinary medicine, it's more like you're presented with a problem You've got to work through the problem. And then you have, most of the time, you have an end result. It may not be an instant result, but there's an outcome, you know, whether it's success or failure. I got close to end of grad school and I started to kind of rethink what I really wanted to do. And the suggestion was made to me that, well, why don't you apply for vet school? (laughs) And it had never occurred to me to do that before. And I had never wanted to go to vet school. I had never wanted to become a veterinarian. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it was a really good fit. And at that point, I had had so much experience. So I also knew going into it that I would enjoy it because I had been doing it for so long. So I went ahead and applied and I got in and there we go. Well, right now I'm working at a clinic pretty much full-time, a small animal 
day practice, private practice. Typically, when you walk in, um, before you even get to like the back where all the action is going to happen, you are walking by the receptionist and they're saying, hey, Dr. Heron, wait, wait. <laughs> you know, Mrs. Johnson just called with Fluffy and Fluffy can't open one eye and and she wants to know what to do. And and we say, OK, just have her come in. So then you add one to your day and things like that or so-and-so called and they're confused about this medication and they need some advice and then you have to you're tacking on a phone call so you walk in and you have these little extra things that get tacked onto your day and then you know you have a schedule where you have appointments throughout the morning and then you have a little break supposedly a break and then you have your afternoon same thing scheduled appointments and then you just have a series of surprises as the day goes along. Some days are nice, straightforward, calm, and you just have a bunch of animals coming in that are healthy. They need their vaccines. They need their heartworm test, whatever, you know, their routine preventative care. And the day is just beautiful and smooth. Some days you walk in and you have a dog that's vomiting for three days and who knows what's causing it. And you can have a series of sick animals just fall in your lap all at once. And then other days it's a mixture. So usually it's pretty busy. Usually it's pretty busy. And then by the end of the day, sometimes you get out right on time. Sometimes you're there an extra hour making phone calls, calling people with lab results. So the days, it's pretty busy. <laughs> and you're constantly having to think, 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 think. I've had experience in maybe three or four different shelter organizations, and a couple of them are really able to do just about everything for the animals that come into their care. So if something comes in and it needs, I don't know, a fracture repair, they're able to afford to go and do that. Some shelters can, and some shelters can't. A lot of the time with the shelters, you're... Um, practicing kind of a different level of medicine because you have to consider problems not only from an individual animal standpoint, but you're also dealing with outbreaks, population medicine. So it can be really, really different. So you have to learn how to not just manage a cat that's got an upper respiratory infection, but you have a whole population of cats and you have a couple that are getting sick so you have to know how to take steps to try to minimize how many cats end up getting sick. You do take away the stressors of talking with clients because it's really nice to talk to people a lot of the time as you go through your day in a private practice. But there's also a lot of stress with um, people who are angry or upset, and you don't have to deal with that in shelter medicine. I have a um, house call home euthanasia practice on the side. So it's mostly home euthanasias. When people call and they say, well, I think maybe my dog or cat is getting close to being needing to be euthanized. Usually when they're not 
sure I can have a consult with them, have a discussion with them about what has their pet been diagnosed with, if they even know. And depending on how they answer that question, telling them to either go to their veterinarian if they're not sure if there's still something that could be done to support that animal, or go to their veterinarian about palliative care. Because most of the time, these people have already been working with their regular veterinarian. And if it's an animal that, say, just needs some pain support or some support for appetite, um, they can go to their regular vet for those things without spending more money to come and have me tell them and give them the same things that they could get from their regular vet. And then have them come back to me when they think it's really time, and then I can go to their home and, and offer them that home euthanasia service. It's one of those things, it's just, it's so much easier on the pet, it's so much easier on the family to not have to drag that animal into the office. We've all been through that before where we've dragged our animal in that's dying or getting close to death, dragging them into the veterinarian to be euthanized. And I've had a bad experience and maybe you've had a bad experience. A lot of people have had bad experiences doing that. And I get it, I totally get it. And so it just, occurred to me that that is a nice service to offer people. Why, why not? I can do that. I can still practice um, veterinary medicine in a clinic and have that nice diversity of practice and still do this kind of service on the side. People just appreciate it so much. So it does give you a lot of satisfaction. I don't feel like I have overt compassion fatigue. Um, consciously, but I'm sure that at some subconscious level, I probably have compassion fatigue, like anybody does who works in shelters or uh, in the veterinary profession. Uh, it's almost like, how could you not have that? You have to kind of develop a thick skin where you know that you can't help everybody the way you'd like to. Um, you can't play God. And there's a limit to what you can offer people. As far as people who end up ultimately going going there in terms of becoming profoundly depressed or suicidal, I wonder if it's compounded by having some sort of underlying, underlying propensity towards depression. And then you add the stressors of compassion fatigue, and it just tips the scales. Probably one of the biggest stressors people who come in um, with their animals and they have no money, no money to do anything. And maybe it's something that is manageable, maybe is fixable, um, but they have no means to take care of it financially. When you work at a veterinary practice, you know, it's a business. You can't give away services for free. And even though you you often do. We often will end up working with people and saying, okay, what can you pay today? What can you pay next week? We work with people on finances to try to make it happen for them. But it's a big problem because some people, um, especially at the emergency clinics, they just show up and they have nothing and they have nothing. Sometimes you can, you know, have them relinquish ownership 
and take care of that animal and rehome that animal into a situation where they can take care of it. Um, but that's not always possible. Um, another big stressor is people who simply don't want to take care of their animal properly. They come in and you examine their animal and you find a few problems that you know are manageable and you know probably aren't you know, making the animal feel very good. And yet you know there's a solution and you have an owner who says, oh, they're fine. Or, oh, I just want a rabies shot. That's really hard to see. Um, somebody who doesn't have any limitations financially, or maybe not a lot, and yet they refuse to do some of these things that their animal needs that could they could really benefit from. So like a good example is somebody will come in and their dog has maybe a chronic limp or is really stiff, you know, arthritic. And the owner just says, oh, they're fine. They're fine. And I try to explain to them they're living with some chronic pain, even if it's not severe pain, maybe it's mild to moderate pain, it still warrants some support, but they're so used to seeing it at home and thinking of it as a non-issue or thinking of it as, oh, they're just getting old. They don't really buy into the fact that their animal does have a chronic condition that needs to be supported. That's another big stressor. I try my hardest to keep up with current information because that's going to directly translate into the kind of care I'm going to be able to offer. There's absolutely no way to keep up with everything. They say that if you spent 24 hours, seven days a week reading and studying, you would just barely scratch the tip of the iceberg of the information that's out there to be uh, learned and to know about. To just for small animal medicine and surgery, just for that. So as you're presented with problems or the most common problems, you just have to use your resources that you have to learn, 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 and read, 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 so that you can make sure that you're approaching problems the correct way. And so even if somebody can't do everything that you're suggesting, you can at least present it to them let them know what their options are, let them know what the different tiers of care would be. This is gold standard, and this would be the second best approach, and this is the third best approach. And we do that a lot, where we, we start out offering the best, and if they can't do everything, we say, okay, well, we could whittle away this and this. We're missing this information, so we may not be able to do this as specifically and and understand specifically what's going on, but we can still treat some symptoms. So I like to be able to offer people the best care, the gold standard care, as best as I know about a certain condition, and then be flexible about what we're going to do based on their capabilities, you know, finances, um, logistics, like I'm not able to medicate my animal. My, my animal won't take pills, or my animal tries to bite me when I try to squirt liquid into its mouth. So there are certain logistic problems too. But I would say just my overall philosophy is to offer the best and then be flexible based on, on the owner's needs and abilities to get the animal taken care of as best we can. I think one of the biggest changes is 
how people are treating animals as they come into the clinic environment. It used to be when I started out, you know, as a technician 20 years ago, handling the animals, people weren't as savvy about how to restrain an animal, to minimize anxiety and fear. I think that we had a lot more animals that were stressed out. There's this whole more modern idea of a fear-free approach to handling animals, and that's relatively new. Some clinic environments, even you know a decade ago, were really sophisticated about it. Um, and I've worked in a number of different clinics, and I can see, I've seen the differences between clinics um, where some people are just, they just use what we call bruticane to restrain an animal and that animal's terrified and it's worse on the animal. And then they come back to the vet another time and it's even worse. Um, it's harder on the staff because it's harder to work with that animal. That's evolved over time where I've seen more and more clinics using things like drugs like trazodone for anxiety before they come, going slower with the animals and just taking more time with them, getting down on the floor with them and taking that extra time to let them relax. But for the animals that are just terrified, giving them drugs at home before they come has kind of been a game changer. Sometimes just a little bit of something helps. Sometimes you have to give them two, three, and four drugs before they come, but you have an animal that's much less stressed out, much more compliant. So that's been a big shift. I still see clinics that are not doing that, which horrifies me because it's 2021. I've seen a trend towards more and more people just becoming more sophisticated with their medical knowledge and taking that time to explain things to people better. But that's also not across the board. <laughs> it's just crazy because I still see practices that I'm just horrified by the culture I'm just horrified by the the way they're treating the animals and how they're still practicing backwards medicine they're still practicing 1980s level medicine i get frustrated by that because there's information about how to treat certain conditions that has been widely available to people for well over a decade and yet they're still practicing like they don't have that information. That's very frustrating. People think that we make a lot of money, but they don't factor in how much money we pay to the government every month to pay for the school that we had to go through. Well, they're veterinarians. They have lots of money. You know, they're in it for the money. And when you think about how much money a veterinarian pays, to go to school and the loans that you have to pay back. When you look at the cost of school relative to how much you are paid, uh, comparing a human physician to a veterinarian, we both do the same things. They only have to deal with one species. We have to learn about several. They get paid about three to four times the amount we get paid. And yet we're both paying the same amount to go to school. We both have to pay the same amount of loans for 20 years after we get out of school, um, and yet we're making a fraction of the money. And the other thing is that the fee schedules that you do see in veterinarians uh, or veterinary practices 
those fees are so dirt cheap relative to the same procedures that you would have done in a human hospital or, you know, clinic. And people don't realize, you know, we're, we're all doing the same things to different species. And yet the veterinary services are dirt cheap relative. So these are things that people don't realize. And <laughs> as far as mitigating, you have to try to treat every client the same way. You don't want to profile anyone. You want to make sure you offer people the best, regardless of whether you think they come in looking a certain way. You can't profile people. And so you have to offer them the best, and yet you have to be flexible. So we may have to try a few different things to see how they go, but let's just continue to work really closely. You want to try to engage people so that they don't feel put off, they don't feel as though they're being pressured, and they don't feel as though they're being a bad pet owner because they can't do everything. Because not everybody can. A lot of people can't. And so you have to do everything you can to make them feel at ease and make them feel okay with that. I don't know what proportion of animals don't just get their regular preventative care, but I have a feeling it's extremely high that only a fraction of animals have protection against some of these things that are so, so easy to protect them against and aren't going to cost a fortune that it would be nice if people would at least be able to vaccinate their dogs and cats against the diseases that can really make them sick and cost a lot and prevent some of these things infectious diseases, parasites, parasite-borne diseases, some of these things that are just so simple to take care of and avoid. Simple things like nutrition. Simple things like nutrition, where make sure you feed your cat the right way. Make sure you're not feeding your dog crappy food. You can avoid the things that are very easy to avoid by just spending a little bit, just budget a little bit every year for your pet. You know, if something else comes up, something else comes up, but at least you can protect them against these really common things that are easy to protect them against. You know, don't end up spending money on Parvo because you didn't get your dog vaccinated. Don't spend your money on a uterine infection because you didn't get your dog spayed. Well, as far as um, work-life balance, just sheer work hours, I've kind of done it both ways. I've gone through periods of time where I just overwork myself to the point where I say, okay, back off. You need to not work as much. And I've learned over time to try to set a schedule so that I don't work too much. So I get that time off. For example, since I do a combination of general small animal practice and the house calls, I specifically schedule myself a shorter work week, like four days a week instead of five, because I know that there's going to also be some house calls tacked on. I have flexibility with the home euthanasia service that I offer so that I can pick and choose. And that gets really challenging for me because I have a really hard time telling people no, because people call, they're in a dire strait, 
and um, they need some help and it's really, really tempting. And I, I, I kind of have a bad habit of just saying yes to everybody. And then I end up having a quote unquote weekend turn into five house calls. If I keep doing that, I'm starting to get burned out because all I'm doing is working. You have to mitigate that by telling people no sometimes. And it makes me feel really, really bad <laughs> to tell anybody no. It makes me feel really bad. Um, and I hate it. But sometimes I just have to. Work is, is not your life. I, I mean, I'm lucky because I love my work, but work also can't be my life. It just can't be. And if I said yes to everything, I would be working constantly. I need to have that time to work on projects that I like, to go and hike, you know, to do some of the things that I enjoy doing. I think there is a propensity in veterinary medicine to overwork yourself and a propensity to burn out. And who knows, that may, be, that may contribute to the depression rate, suicide rate. Maybe you have a combination of compassion fatigue, being overworked, and an underlying, you know, depressive problem. I think to be a good veterinarian, I think you have to have interest in science. You have to be a little bit of a nerd to be a good veterinarian. If you have no interest in science, if you have no interest in lifelong learning, you're probably not going to be a very good veterinarian. You're just going to get in the habit of doing things the same way every time for 30 years, and that will become a disservice to your patients and your clients. Obviously, you need to have a thick skin because you see a lot of really, really horrific things, and you see a lot of emotions. You have to have a thick skin. And that's probably one of the things I've learned over time is that you start out thinking that you're going to save everything on the planet. You're going to be able to do everything. And you learn over time that you can't do everything. You just can't. And you have to learn to mitigate any guilt because you, you do feel guilty when you can't do everything. And it happens even when you've offered somebody care and they've declined it. You still feel guilty. And it's irrational. You uh, just have to learn over time that you can't fix everything. You can't do everything you'd like to do. And you have to really try hard to not feel too guilty about it. You have to distance yourself a little bit. I'm kind of a science nerd, so I think it's just fun. Just seeing these different conditions and learning how to treat them. From a nerd perspective, it's just kind of fun. And then, you know, I feel lucky that I can do something with my life that is um, interesting from an intellectual standpoint, but then also makes you feel warm and fuzzy because you help, you help somebody. So there's not a lot of things out there, professions, where you get to have both of those things. And so I feel pretty lucky.